Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. A few years ago, a Christian college's basketball team from the U.S. was on a mission trip in the African nation of Malawi. As the Malawian team was warming up to play an exhibition game against the U.S. team, one of the players from the Malawian team had on one tennis shoe, and another player on the team had on, had on only one sneaker as well. This prompted some snickering from some of the U.S. players until they heard the rest of the story. Shoes are very expensive in Malawi. And one of the boys on the team could not afford basketball shoes. So one of his friends on the team, who is a follower of Jesus, rather than letting him go barefooted and be embarrassed in front of the Americans, gave him one of his tennis shoes so they could both play with at least one shoe each. When that explanation was given, the snickering stopped as a sobering reality of the gap between those who have a lot and those who do not sunk in. But something also registered in a refreshing way to those American basketball players. They saw an example of what happens when people take following Jesus seriously. And here's what happens. Followers of Jesus give generously and sometimes sacrificially. We're in a series called Next Steps into a New Normal. And in this series, we're spotlighting our core ministry strategy of how we help people take intentional, accessible, concrete steps to live as disciples and followers of Jesus. Because here's what we know. Nobody drifts into discipleship. No one accidentally stumbles into a life of faithful following. And of all the steps that we've been talking about in this series, the step that we're talking about today may be the truest indicator that transformation is really taking place. Because fallen human beings by nature are born takers. And you know this if you have raised children. What's one of the first words that a kid utters that no one taught them to say? Mine. Not yours. Not share. Not give. Mine. In fact, I ran across the property laws that all toddlers seem to naturally and instinctively follow. There's 10 of them. Here they go. Number one, if I want it, it's mine. Number two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. Number three, if I can take it away from you, it's mine. Number four, if I had a little while ago, it's mine. Number five, if it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. Number six, if we're building something together, all the pieces are mine. Number seven, if it just looks like mine, it's mine. Number eight, if I think it's mine, it's mine. Number nine, if I gave it to you and changed my mind later, it's mine. Number 10, if it's broken, it's yours. 
but time and time again in the Gospels. We see something radically changes whenever people meet Jesus. And here's what happens. Born takers become born again givers. That didn't get you very excited. That got me real excited when I heard that. Born takers become born again givers. How does this happen? Because when Jesus leads, generosity follows. We see this happen to a man who met Jesus one day by the name of Zacchaeus. We read about his story in Luke's gospel, beginning in chapter 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. With brief but telling strokes, the Gospel of Luke introduces us to Zacchaeus. And one of the first things that Luke tells us about him is he was a tax collector and wealthy. You know, even today, people who work for the IRS usually don't advertise it at parties. (laughs) However, one of our dearest sisters at Journey, Linda Krosky, worked for years at the Internal Revenue Service, and Linda has reformed my perceptions of what an employee of the IRS is. If they're like Linda, then they're wonderful people. But some of you don't know who Linda is. That's a a shame because she's a sweet sister. But we must understand what being a tax collector meant at that time and in that place. Israel was a conquered nation. Under military occupation, their conquerors, the Romans, levied oppressive taxes on each colony across the Roman Empire as a means for transferring most of the conquered nation's wealth back to Rome and its citizens. This left the colonial societies impoverished, which kept them subjugated. The only people who lived in comfort in Israel were the Romans who ruled and their local Jewish collaborators like tax collectors. The Romans basically operated a flat tax system. Pay whatever taxes they tell you or you get flattened. Actually, the tax system depended on the local officials who were charged with extracting for their Roman overlords the tax income from each region targeted for collection, and everyone despised them. If you want to get a sense of how these functionaries were regarded, Think of what people thought of the collaborators who, under the Nazis, oppressed their own people during World War II. Or think of the drug lords who get rich enslaving thousands of the poorest and most vulnerable people of the inner city. And then you can understand the view of tax collectors at this time. Why would anyone take such a job as a tax collector? What could seduce a man to betray his family and his country and live as a pariah in his own society? There's only one answer, and you already know what it is. What's the answer? Money. The financial incentives the Romans offered tax collectors was almost irresistible. And backed by military force, The local tax collector was allowed to demand much more money from his fellow Jews than he had contracted to pay the government. Basically, this is 
legalized extortion. But it was an extremely lucrative career path and an intensely despised one. Tax collectors were the wealthiest people in society and the most hated. And one of the reasons that Luke brought Zacchaeus to our attention was that he was not just a regular tax collector. He was an Arctilonis. He was the arch tax collector. Most English translations say the chief tax collector. As the head of an entire network of tax collectors, he would have been the wealthiest and the most hated member. But that probably didn't matter much to Zacchaeus because he had long ago sacrificed everything he had in order to get money. You see, money had become his master. Now, we know money is in in itself not inherently good or bad, but listen, it's always powerful. It's always powerful. Money can be a wonderful servant, but it is a terrible, terrible master. But also the invisible and controlling grip of greed on our lives so often happens in ways we never see coming. That's why Jesus said to his listeners earlier in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. For a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. What kinds of greed is Jesus talking about? Well, in the surrounding passages of Luke 11 and 12, Jesus warned people about worrying over their possessions. You see, for Jesus, greed is not only the love of money, it's the excessive anxiety about it. He lays out the reason our emotions are so powerfully controlled by our bank account. He said a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. To consist of your possessions is to be defined by what you own and consume. The term describes a personal identity based on money. It refers to people who, if they lost their wealth, would not have a self left for their personal worth is wrapped up in their financial worth. Later on, Jesus comes right out and he calls it what it is. He said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who love money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts what is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. When Jesus calls money a master that can become a rival to serving God, he's using the basic biblical metaphor for idolatry. And according to biblical writers, idolaters do three things with their idols. They love them, they trust them, they obey them. They love them, they trust them, they obey them. Lovers of money are those who find themselves daydreaming and fantasizing about new ways to make money, new ways to spend money, and looking with jealousy on those who have more money. Trusters of money feel they have control of their lives and are safe and secure because of their wealth. When Jesus says that people serve money, he uses a word that means the solemn covenantal service rendered to a king. 
If you live for money, you see, you are its servant and you obey whatever it tells you. If, however, God becomes the center of your life, he dethrones and demotes money. If your identity and security is rooted in God, then money can't control you through worry and desire. But it is one or the other, according to Jesus. You either serve God or you become open to slavery to money. Nowhere is this slavery more evident than in the blindness of greedy people to their own materialism. Notice that Jesus said in Luke 12, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. That's a remarkable statement. Think of another traditional sin in the Bible that we're frequently warned against, like adultery. Nowhere do you ever hear Jesus say something like, be careful you aren't committing adultery. Why not? He doesn't have to. When you're in bed with someone else's spouse, you know it. I mean, halfway through, you don't say, oh, wait a minute, this isn't my wife. You know it's not. Yet, even though it is clear that the world is filled with greed and materialism, almost no one thinks it is true of them. Other people are greedy. I'm not greedy. We're all in denial about how much control money has over our lives. Tim Keller writes, money is one of the most common counterfeit gods there is. When it takes hold of your heart, it blinds you to what is happening. It controls you through your anxieties and lust, and it brings you to put it ahead of all other things until we meet Jesus. Zacchaeus wanted to see who Jesus was, Luke tells us, but because he was a short man, he could not see because of the crowd. So Luke tells us that he ran ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, the little song from Sunday school class, remember? Since Jesus was coming that way, when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and he said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he is gone to be the guest of a sinner. Zacchaeus was a short man. But why couldn't a short man stand on the road in front of the taller people? Obviously, they wouldn't let him (laughs) because they despised him. In response, Zacchaeus did a surprising thing for a man of his status. He climbed a tree. We have to pause for a moment to appreciate the significance of that. In ancient Eastern cultures, it was not freedom and rights that mattered most as it does for those of us in the West. No, what mattered most in Eastern societies was honor and dignity. For any adult male to climb up into a tree would have invited enormous ridicule. Surely a person like Zacchaeus, who was already despised, would be more careful to act in a way that was fitting to such a dignified personage. So why did he do it? Luke tells us. He wanted to see who Jesus was. 
Something inside Zacchaeus was eager to connect to Jesus. In fact, eager may be too weak of a word. His willingness to climb a tree to see him in front of everyone else signifies something closer to desperation. And here in Zacchaeus, we see a reality that so many affluent people in our world experience. You can have so much materially and be so empty spiritually. You can have so much materially and be so empty spiritually. Financial success is never as fulfilling as we think it will be. When money is our master, we may experience pleasurable moments of satisfaction, but we constantly struggle with persistent periods of discontent. Jesus came along and he saw a crowd of mainly respectable religious people, all of whom felt morally superior to prostitutes and tax collectors. But instead of addressing any of them, he singled out the most notorious sinner in the whole throng, Zacchaeus, the arch tax collector, the worst possible person that Jesus could have picked. And yet right in the face of this muttering, moralistic, judgmental crowd, he selected Zacchaeus not only to talk with, but to eat with. And everyone was offended, but Jesus didn't care. He said, Zacchaeus, I don't want to go to their houses. I want to go to your house. And Zacchaeus immediately welcomed him into his home with astonished joy. Now, I want you to pay attention because you're going to miss something if you don't. This simple interchange we're about to read cannot be more revealing about the difference between the gospel and religion. It cannot be more revealing. First of all, Zacchaeus did not approach Jesus with pride and humility excuse me, with pride, but with, with humility. He did not stand on his dignity and wealth. Instead, he put aside his station in life and was willing to be ridiculed in order to get a glimpse of Jesus. And God draws near to the humble, but he opposes the proud. But ultimately, listen, it was not Zacchaeus who asked Jesus into his life, but Jesus who asked Zacchaeus into his. You can almost hear Jesus Laugh as he says, I kiss. Yeah, I'm talking to you up in the tree. I'm going home with you today. Jesus knew how outrageous his action looked to the crowd, how it contradicted everything they thought they knew about how religion was supposed to work. You see, they thought religion is about performance and purity. When Zacchaeus saw that Jesus had chosen the least virtuous person in the crowd himself for a personal relationship, his whole spiritual understanding began to change. Though it is unlikely he had a clear, conscious understanding of this at the time, he began to realize that God's salvation was by grace, not through moral achievement or performance. And that realization went through him like lightning, and it resulted in a declaration that it went through everyone who would hear it with bewilderment. And so Zacchaeus stood up and said to Jesus, look, Lord, here and now I give half of all my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek what was 
lost. Zacchaeus wanted to follow Jesus, and immediately he realized if he was to do that, money was an issue. So he makes two remarkable promises. Number one, he promised to give away 50% of his income to the poor. Friends, this goes far beyond the 10% giving that the Mosaic law required. And Zacchaeus knew that. You see, his heart had been transformed. And since he knew salvation was not through keeping the law, because he didn't keep the law, but through grace, his aim was to not live by only fulfilling the letter of the law. No, he wanted to go way beyond that. Tim Keller says, there have been times when people have come to me as their pastor and ask about tithing, giving away a tenth of their annual income to charity. They notice that in the Old Testament, there are many clear commands that believers should give away 10%. But in the New Testament, specific quantitative requirements for giving are less prominent. And they ask Pastor Keller, you don't think that now in the New Testament, believers are absolutely required to give away 10%, do you? And Keller says, I shake my head, no, they're not. And they give a huge sigh of relief, he says. But then Keller says, I quickly add, I'll tell you why you don't see the tithing requirement laid out clearly in the New Testament. Think. Have we, as Christians, received more of God's revelation, truth, and grace than the Old Testament believers or less? Are we more debtors to grace than they were or less? And he finishes off with this great statement. Did Jesus tithe his blood or did he give it all away? Keller concludes, tithing is a minimum standard for Christian believers. And we certainly wouldn't want to be in a position of giving away less of our income than those who had so much less of an understanding of what God did to save them. Number two. Zacchaeus' second promise did not have to do so much with charity and mercy, but with justice. Over the course of his career, Zacchaeus had made a great deal of money by cheating people out of theirs. There were many people from whom he had taken exorbitant revenues. And here again, the law of Moses made a provision. Moses declared in Leviticus chapter 5, verse 16, Numbers chapter 5, verse 7, if you'd stolen anything, you are to make restitution with interest. In fact, he said you had to give it back with 20% interest. However, once again, Zacchaeus wanted to do more than fulfill the letter of the law. He said he would give back, take a look at this, four times the amount he had stolen. That's 300% interest. That's way beyond what anyone would expect or even hope for. And in response to these remarkable promises, Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. Now listen, he did not say, if you live like this, salvation will come to this house. No, it has come Because God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. A changed life comes in response to God's salvation offered as a free gift. 
That was the reason for Zacchaeus' new heart and life. If salvation had been something he earned through obedience to the moral code, then Zacchaeus' question would have been, how much must I give? However, these promises were in response to the lavish, generous grace of Christ. So his question is, how much can I give? He realized that while being financially rich, he'd been spiritually bankrupt. But Jesus had poured out spiritual riches on him freely. He went from being an oppressor of the poor to being a champion of justice. He went from accruing wealth at the expense of the people around him to serving others at the expense of his wealth. Why? Jesus had replaced money as Zacchaeus' savior. And therefore, money went back to being merely that, just money. It's now a tool for doing good, for serving people. Now that his identity and security were rooted in Christ, he realized he had more money than he needed. The grace of God broke the grip of greed on Zacchaeus' life because when Jesus leads, generosity follows. We see this happening in the life of the early church. Once people embraced Jesus as Messiah, repented of their rebellion against him, and went all in on Jesus by going all under in Christian baptism, a new gospel-shaped community is formed among them, and they have some radical new practices that they put in place. They worship together faithfully. They spent time with Jesus daily. They connected and gathered in community regularly. They served others in need around them humbly, and they developed a new perspective about their possessions. Luke, the writer not only of the gospel of Luke, but of the book of Acts, tells us what that new perspective looked like, Acts 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Now understand, people still retain control of some of their stuff. This is not communism or some other form of socialist economic policies. As we read on in Acts, we read about people who had homes that they opened up for meetings and businesses that they operated for profit. But one of the striking characteristics of the early church and one of the reasons it just exploded onto the world is because there had never been in human history a community that handled their material stuff the way that community did. You see, one of the marks when the Spirit of God is poured out on a community is that people move from owner to steward, from an attitude of this is mine to this is God's. And this is one of the unique aspects of a church when it comes to money. Friends, a church is not one more organization. Organizations are focused on fundraising. And it really doesn't matter where the funds come from. I mean, if you can get one person to give all the money to hit the organizational goal, that's fine with them. A church is different. Churches focus on faith building. We're not here doing donor development. We're making disciples of Jesus. We're not just trying to raise dollars. We're trying to grow followers. 
We're not seeking to implement the latest and greatest methods of increased funding. We're seeking to teach an essential practice of growing faith because true giving is never just an economic exchange. It's a life-giving act. When we release our funds, faith is released in us. And every time that happens in a human heart, the community of Jesus becomes a little stronger. Every time one person crosses from the owner category to the steward category, whether they have a lot of stuff or just a little stuff, doesn't matter. Every time that happens, a dynamic is released in the community because the heart of that community is becoming more like the heart of God. There was an article I cut out of a local paper several years ago about a woman by the name of Osceola McCarty. That is Miss McCarty right there. She's deceased now, but at the time she was... 87-year-old woman who lived all of her life in Mississippi, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Her whole life, she worked doing other people's laundry. She dropped out of school in the sixth grade to take care of a sick aunt and never returned to school. She never got married. She never had children. Most of her life, she lived alone. And one day, she decided she wanted to give a gift. And so she presented to the University of Southern Mississippi money to go towards a scholarship fund for deserving African-American students who could demonstrate financial need. Now, let me ask you, how much money do you think an 87-year-old single black woman who lived in Mississippi all of her life, historically one of the most racist and poorest states in America, who worked taking in other people's laundry? Would you believe she gave the University of Southern Mississippi $150,000? She never owned a car. She never learned how to drive. Never had air conditioning in her simple frame house. In fact, the officials at the bank who acted as her advisors convinced her at age 86 to finally buy a window air conditioning unit for the room where she sleeps. I want you to listen to what Osceola McCarty said when she gave this gift. She said, I can't do everything, but I can do something to help somebody. And what I can do, I will do. I wish I could do more. I want you to imagine this is a real person. This is not somebody from the first century. It's a real person in our day who just decided with a tiny bit of stuff that she had, the best thing she could do with it was give it away so somebody else could be enriched in ways that she never was. In our society, people don't think that kind of lifestyle is the kind they want to pursue. But I want to tell you something. Listen to me. In the kingdom of God, people like Osceola McCarty are rich beyond compare. In the kingdom of God, that's what beauty and goodness look like because, you see, that's the trajectory Jesus took when he descended into greatness to save us. Paul writes about this in his second letter to the Corinthian church. You see, Paul, part of why Paul wrote this letter is he's asking the Corinthian church to give an offering to the famine-stricken believers in Jerusalem. And though Paul is an apostle with great authority, he had no problem using that authority, by the way. He writes with great humility about this offering. And he says to them, I say this not by way of command. In other words, I don't want to order you around. I'm not trying to put pressure on you to give against your will. Rather, he wants to see the genuineness of your love. And he writes these famous words, Probably the greatest words ever written about giving. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Jesus, the God-man, 
had infinite wealth, but if he held on to it, we would have died in our spiritual poverty. And that was the choice. If he stayed rich, we would die poor. If he died poor, we could be abundantly and spiritually rich. You see, Paul was not just giving this church a mere ethical precept. He was not just exhorting them to stop loving money so much and become more generous. No, he restated the gospel. And this is what Paul was saying. I love this. Jesus gave up all his treasure in heaven in order to make you his treasure. That's the gospel. When you see Jesus dying to make you his treasure, then you will make him yours and money will cease to be the currency of significance and security in your life. And you'll want to bless others with what you have to give. Friends, to the degree that you grasp the gospel, money will have no dominion over you. Think on his costly grace until it changes you into a generous people. The antidote to greed is a reorientation to the generosity of Jesus in the gospel. Now we don't have to worry about money. The cross proves God's care for you and gives you security. Now you don't have to envy anyone else's money. Jesus' love and salvation confers on you a remarkable status, one that money can never give you. Friends, money can't save you from tragedy. Money's not going to give you control in a chaotic world. Only God can do that. So stop loving and serving money and start using your money to love God, love people, and serve our world. So what step do you need to take today with regard to your money? I want to suggest three things as I wrap up. Number one, start your giving journey. The old saying is the longest journey starts with the first step. And the journey to generosity starts with the first gift. And some of us just need to start the practice of giving. Maybe you used to. Maybe you never did. Maybe you don't think you can afford to give. Listen, giving doesn't make you a follower of Jesus, but following Jesus will make you a giver. Number two, stick with a giving plan. Many people have a desire to give, but they have no direction on how to give. However, it's direction, not intention, that determines destination. We can easily convince ourselves that our good intentions will become good strategy if we think and talk about them long enough. That's like thinking about exercise and expecting it to produce the same benefit that exercising actually produces. Wouldn't that be great? I love this scripture from Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah says, but generous people plan to do what is generous, and they stand firm in their generosity. Determine a giving plan and stick with it, whether you give weekly or monthly or quarterly or even annually. Stand firm in it. Maybe your plan is impacted by annual investment returns. Maybe it's impacted by a monthly sales bonus. Everybody has to figure out what works within your personal economic reality, but never underestimate that Regular, generous giving of your money will shape your heart. Here's how Jesus put it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where money leads, hearts follow. Lastly, select the best giving option. And I'm specifically talking about ways you can give to Journey, to the ministry of Journey Christian Church. First of all, you can uh, go to the website journeychristian.org, 
Giving.com give. A lot of people automate their giving, and that's an easy way to do it. Secondly, you can go to the Journey Christian app. Now, I want to say to you, everybody pay attention, make sure it has that little uh, icon right there. There are many Journey churches around our country. There are several Journey churches in Orlando. So, I mean, I'm all for you blessing other churches. But if you're trying to bless this church, give the Journey Christian app. Amen? All right. You can mail in your gift. That's our address, 1965 South Orange Blossom Trail. You can mail in it. And we have offering stations. I know at Lake County, there's an offering station out in Atrium, right by the door. Uh, all around our room here in Apopka and out in Atrium. Online, I want to talk to you. You can, you can do more than just watch. You can give. So many of you watch from New York City or uh, Kentucky, uh, out of country. And, and, and I hear often, you're blessed by what we're doing here. You can share in that blessing. You can give. You can do it right now. Journeychristian.com give. I want to say to all of us, online, on site, however you choose to do it, friends, I urge you, take the giving step. Listen, even if you have to do it in one shoe. Stand with me right now. Let everybody stand. Lake County, let's stand. So, Father, we thank you that you have shown us in the gospel what it means to give. For God so loved the world that he gave. And we can't follow Jesus without being givers. So, Father, I just want to pray you do a work through your word in the lives of the folks that are in Apopka, Lake County, online. I want to pray, Father, that you would just uh, bless and open up some new ways of growing because people today are going to open up some new ways of giving. And when our funds are released in the name of Jesus, faith grows in the name of Jesus. So, Father, we thank you for that right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible.